Well, if you're new and visiting us this morning, um, once again, my name is Brendan, and thanks so much for, for joining us. We are in the middle of a series on Philippians. Philippians is one of my favorite letters of the Bible, and um, really it's just full of so much goodness. And this is possibly one of my personal favorite parts of Philippians and possibly the whole Bible as well. So we, we really need to uh, be hearing, not from me this morning, but hearing from God and his word. Last week, Dave was unpacking for us uh, a message on uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, really looking at that idea of in humility counting others as of more significance than ourselves and of not looking to our own interests. This idea of humility and, and really putting others above ourselves This week we're going to be moving on to really probably, I guess, part two of the series, really the sequel to last week as we move on to verses 5 and 11. We're really privileged in uh, in this section of Scripture to really be looking at the cross, but looking at the cross from Christ's perspective, looking at what the cross was for him. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through to 11, but I'm going to read the whole section from verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are humbled as we consider your cross, and all you've done for us at the cross. Lord, this morning, we just want to see more of you. We just want to see you and what you've done for us that that little bit more clearly, Lord. And so we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, help your words to penetrate deeply that we might glorify the Son who came for us and pray this in his name. Amen. Marcus Richard Einfield. 
Born September 22, 1938, an Australian former Justice of the Federal Court and Supreme Courts of New South Wales, Western Australia and the ACT. A former President of the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission, a UNICEF Ambassador for Children and a former recipient of the Order of Australia Medal. In August 2006, Ironfield contested a $77 speeding ticket by claiming he had lent his car to an old friend, Professor Teresa Brennan. At the time, it was caught by a speed camera. He gave evidence under oath in the local court, and he also signed a statutory declaration to that effect. However, it was later revealed that Professor Brennan had been killed in a road accident in the United States in February 2003, and that Ironfield was aware of it. On March 29, 2007, Ironfield was arrested by the New South Wales Police and was charged with 13 offences, including perjury, perverting the course of justice, and making and using false statutory declarations. Ironfield's public life came to an end in 2009 when he became the first Australian former Supreme Court judge to be imprisoned. He was sentenced to three years in prison for perjury and for attempting to pervert the court of justice, the course of justice. He was removed as a barrister in in New South Wales. His Order of Australia medal was rescinded and since removed completely from the public life. It's an amazing fall from grace. It's the story of a man who was once at the pinnacle of our society's elite and yet in such a short period of time has been absolutely humbled. Well, today we're talking about humility. Humility, it means literally bringing low. In Christian circles, I think we we kind of like to talk about humility, but we kind of made it kind of this glossy, distinguished Christian compliment, really. You know, we talk about someone, we go, oh, look at him, such a humble guy, such a humble person. But do we really understand what we're talking about when we speak this way? You know, the root word in Latin where humility comes from is humus. It means earth or dirt. It literally means to lose status from a position of high status to be taken down into the dirt. It's the same origin as the word humiliate. I mean, put up your hand if you enjoy being humiliated. I know I certainly don't. And Bucks parties really are an excellent opportunity to be humiliated, and mine was just last week. Um, The guys made me, it was thankfully rather tame, but the guys made me dress up in five different onesies and... uh, pose with nothing but speedos on and uh, call out in public, I am the lover lover and do squats at random intervals. I must have done about a thousand squats throughout the day. But, um, you know, this is nothing compared to what we're talking about. You know what? Me being humiliated at my Bucks party is probably good for me because I'm a proud guy. Humility. Today we're looking uh, at a passage in Philippians in a message I've entitled Humble God. And really, there's one main point that I really want to be hammering on today that really sums up the essence of this passage that we're going to be looking at. And I've kind of borrowed it from my friend uh, Jeff Perswell. And that one point is that Jesus Christ's 
humility is the model and the motivation for our humility. Jesus Christ's humility is the model and the motivation for our humility. And I've got two points for those that that take notes that we'll be looking at our model and our motivation. Well, let's get stuck into our passage, our model. But before we do uh, get stuck into this first point, our model, I want to just paint something of context about what's going on in the letter. Paul is writing to the Philippians, you'll remember, from Rome in prison. And he's heard about the situation in Philippi from his dear friend Epaphroditus, who is a Philippian. He's from Philippi and has come to help Paul. Paul has heard that in Philippi, there's been opposition from outside of the church, the Roman Empire, there's been persecution, there's Jews that are opposing them, but there's also opposition from within the church. Uh, There's opposition from within the church, there's divisiveness and ambition and people that are grumbling, people that are not satisfied. And so he's writing to them to encourage them and to equip them by saying, look guys, we're having the same problem as each other. We're going through the same things as each other, he says in in chapter 1, verse 30. And what should they do in response? Well, he calls them, he says, guys, I want you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I want you to live in a way that demonstrates the truth of the gospel. Well, how is this? I want you to live with humility. I want you guys to count others as more significant than yourselves. I want you to look to the interests of others. He says this, these, these, these verses that we looked at last week, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. This is how I want you to live together. This is how I want you to respond to your challenges. I want you to live with humility. I think it's so easy to just give lip service to being humble, say, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to be humble. But the reality is, Living with humility is extremely difficult. It is extremely hard. I was thinking about this uh, during the week. I was thinking about at work, uh, a situation. At work, there's this uh, woman I work with who's a nurse at the hospital during the week who's a, who's a middle-aged uh, lady and, and clearly has some real challenges, some difficulties in her life. And so she's often extremely unkind to other people at the hospital, very rude and abrupt with people. And I can remember one time uh, sitting at uh, my desk. Uh, there's uh, computers lined up that we use them to write patient notes and um, typing up notes and there's all these other computers free and she comes up to me and says, Brennan, get off that computer, I need it. And, and I'm thinking to myself, but, 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 there's, there's, there's other computers free? I mean, you can use other computers. She's like, no, 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 I want this one, it's my one. You can use another one. I'm thinking to myself, what? I mean, In this passage, Paul is saying, count all others as of more significant to yourself. Uh, Live with humility, live looking to the needs of others. This is extremely hard to do. I mean, we we naturally just want to live for ourselves. We naturally want to do things that please ourselves. I mean, how can I live this way, Paul? I mean, even more, why should I live this way? I mean, why should I treat this person as of more significance than me? Paul says, I want to show you 
what this looks like. I want to explain to you what it looks like to count others as of more significance than yourself. And to do that, Paul is so determined to show us what that looks like that he spends the rest of the chapter pretty much doing this. He, he gives us four examples of people living this way. First of all, in our passage, he gives us the example of Christ himself. Then he moves on to give his own example. Then he moves on after that to give Timothy's example. There's no one like him in all the churches that looks to the interests of others. He goes on from there to give the example of Epaphroditus, uh, that great friend of his who's explained to him about the situation in Philippi. Gives four examples of people living this way to help us to see what it looks like to live counting others as more significant than ourselves. Well, we begin by looking at our passage the example of Christ himself, our model. And Paul really shows us two aspects of Christ's example that we want to really dig into this morning. The first being that he gave up his rights for us. Why don't you open your Bibles again to Philippians 2 and and look with me at verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He literally says, think this. It's a command, actually. He says, think this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which is the way that Christians should think. This is Paul's instruction to us. And so we need to listen really carefully to what he's going to say because in this moment, he's, he's, he's addressing us. He's addressing us as followers of Christ. Read, read with me verse 6. who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Who though he was in the form of God. This this word form, it doesn't mean form in the sense that we usually use it, which is just like the shape of God, like he looked, he appeared like God. No, this, this word formorphe, it means like actual substance, God. His essence was God. Though he was in very essence God himself. This is the Holy Trinity, isn't it? The God who we worship. The Divine Trinity, three persons distinct in their personhood. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, and yet one unified God without separation. Three persons, one God, the triune God whom we worship. Three persons eternally satisfied in and within themselves. The Father loving His Son. The Son loving His Father. The Father loving His Son through the Holy Spirit. Eternally satisfied. Eternally glorious. Who in the very form God. Jesus Christ. God the Son. Maker of the universe. That's whom we're looking at this morning. Paul writes elsewhere in Colossians 1.15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything we, we, we see with our eyes was created not only by Jesus Christ, the Son. Not only were they created by Him, they were created for Him, to magnify Him, for His glory. 
More than that, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All life that we see, everything that is, is sustained by the Son. Paul writes in Colossians. That is who we're talking about. The holy, eternal, majestic, divine Son. But what does the passage say? It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing to be grasped. It means a thing to be taken for your own advantage. A thing to be used for your own benefit. Something to use for your own personal gain. All the power that holds the universe together in his grasp. And yet he did not count it as something to use for his own advantage. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it gives new meaning to what was happening in the temptation in the wilderness where the devil tempts him and says, if you're truly the son of God, cast those, speak to those stones and turn them into bread. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Well, why did he do that? Because he did not count equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. I mean, imagine the power of Christ. That he could make stones into bread with just a thought. That he could calm seas with just a whisper. That he could raise the dead or level mountains or destroy whole nations or build whole cities or form new galaxies with a single word. Consider his power. Consider his might. That the whole of the earth and all of life sustained by him that he could have manifested his glory to the whole earth in an instant and every knee and every tongue would confess, would agree that he is Lord of all in a moment with a word. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be used for his advantage. But... He gave up his rights. Verse 7, read with me. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He emptied himself. It means he made himself a nobody. Who here wants to be a nobody? I mean, who here wants to be Someone who never receives praise or thanks for the things that you've done or the person you are. Who wants to be like that? I mean, we often say quite the contrary. We say, I deserve better than this. I deserve to be treated much better than this. I deserve to be thanked for what I've done for you. That's how we speak. And yet, We come to the example of our God himself, our humble 
God who, though he was form of God, he did not count equality with God, I think, to be used for his advantage, but he made himself a nobody. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He laid down all the glory of being the eternal son. Well, how did he do it? Two ways. Let's keep reading. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself by becoming a man, by putting on flesh. I mean, this is profound mystery. This is, this is the theological deep end that we're jumping off into now. This is such a mystery. The creator of the universe coming as a man. I mean, think with me for a moment. Imagine a potter making himself into a pot. Or imagine a builder making himself into a bathroom sink. Or imagine a farmer making himself into a sheep or a pig or a dog. I mean, it's inconceivable. It's, it's mind-bending. It's the God become man forever, for all eternity. It's, it's a divine, profound mystery, and yet still it is a model for us. Still it contains something of an application for us. You know, I was just moved listening to the lyrics of this song uh, by Sovereign Grace. It's called The Unbelievable. Uh, on this very topic, it says this, this song. Who could have ever known the depths of the mystery of your grace? Though our minds can't take it in, our hearts are filled with praise. God has come to dwell with us. Even though we we can't fully comprehend what it is that God himself would come as a man for us, our hearts are filled with praise for him and all he's done. Well, he was found by people to be a man. He was come as a man. Verse 8a, and it says, and being found in human form. That is that people, when they met him, found him just to be a regular guy. You know, if you would have met Christ during his ministry, during his time on earth, you wouldn't have thought anything of him at all. He was just a a regular guy. You could have shaken his hand. You could have given him a hug. He was a regular guy with regular guy smells and everything. He was a regular person just like you and me. Nothing particular about him or about his look that we should have desired him, it says in Isaiah. In fact, he was born of a virgin into squalor. And so people simply did not believe it. They did not believe he was who he said he was. In John 8.41, the Pharisees, they accused him. They said, you know, we weren't born of sexual immorality, meaning to say, you were born of sexual immorality. They say to him, they say, is, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? I mean, how does he say, I come from heaven? We, we do not believe him. We know who you are. We know where you come from. You're from just down the road. And I think it's so easy to look on and say, if we would have met Christ, we would have thought differently. And the truth is, we would have been just like them. Because 
he was a regular man. He was found to be a man. He was fully God and fully man. And yet there he stands. God himself. The one through whom all creation holds together. Born as a man. Yet not just born as a man. There's more than that. The second way he gave up his rights was by taking the form of a servant. Let's read the passage again. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. That word servant is actually the word slave. Taking the form of a slave. It's not enough that he should come as a man. He, he came as a slave. Think about the leaders of our world, whether they be political or business or the social elite. How do they come? Come with flash cars, with private jets, with brand name clothing, with lavish parties and holidays, with beautiful homes on beautiful beaches filled with beautiful people. How does our maker come? How does the author of life come? How does the ruler of the universe, the one for whom the stars in the sky wait with bated breath, how does he come? He comes as a slave. He comes as the lowest of the low, the property of another. You know, a slave was someone who often due to poverty had sold their own possessions such to the extent they had to sell their very own lives to to repay a debt. A slave was someone who had no rights whatsoever. A slave was someone who had given up their rights completely. But oh, but if the humiliation only ended here, it goes even further. Our second point, he gave his life to serve. Read with me verse 8 again. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What an unspeakable truth is that. Not only should the king of glory be humbled as a man, no, no, humbled as a slave, but he should come to die. But it wasn't enough for him to come simply to die. He came to die by death on a cross. You know, Cicero, the famous Roman statesman, describes it as the most cruel and disgusting penalty and the most extreme penalty. You know, if you were crucified, you would be beaten, you would be mocked, you would be stripped naked, you would be nailed to a cross with nails through your wrists and through your ankles and lifted up just above the ground and there you would hang, unable to wipe the sweat or bugs from your face. You would slowly suffocate over days in agony. And there he hangs. Hanging, dying, 
the author of life for us. Now Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 12 says this and it's hard not to read this passage into what he says. He, he says, therefore I will divide with him, Isaiah 53, 12, therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, he poured out his soul for us unto death and yet it was not an accident. Yet it was not in vain because he bore the sins of many. It was never a tragic accident. He was born to die. Nearly 2,000 years before Jesus came, God had made a promise and that promise was that if someone brought an animal uh, to the temple to be killed, if someone did something wrong and they brought an animal to the temple, God would allow the animal to be killed in that person's place. And the animal would take the punishment and set the person free. And it was a symbol. It was symbolic of what God was foreseeing that he would do in the, in the future because it's written elsewhere that, that animals could never really pay for the wrong things that we've done. No, animals can never bear the burden of what we've done. But God was trying to teach his people something about what he's like. He was trying to teach us something about what he was planning to do in the future, that it was possible to take our wrongdoing, to take our guilt, to take our shame and place it on someone else. That was what he was trying to teach us. He was trying to teach us about one great sacrifice that was to come, the sacrifice of Christ. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was the great sacrifice. He takes all the wrongdoing that anyone has ever done and he places it upon himself as he hangs on that cross. I mean, listen to Jesus, what he says himself. He says, no one takes my life from me, but... but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. I have authority to to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This is the charge I've received from my Father. Friends, if, if you're sitting here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, you wouldn't you wouldn't describe yourself as someone who normally believes in the Bible, you you would say that you're you're definitely not someone who's come to a place of of putting a trust in Jesus, saying, yeah, I'm sorry for what I've done. I trust you. You're my king. I want you to hear what this message means for you. I want you to hear what this is saying to you. What the cross means for you is that all the wrong you've done in your life, all your failures, all your shame, was placed on Christ. was finished by him in that once for all sacrifice. And all he asks is that you would trust in him, that you would receive his gift, that you would say sorry for the way you've lived with you as king and put your trust in his finished work on the cross. Well, what an amazing model. The king of glory, the king who gave up his rights and gave up his life to 
to serve us. That's our model. That's, that's, a, that's an amazing model. Um, our motivation. Second point. Paul says, verse 5, think this amongst yourselves. This is massive. He says, I want you to think like this. I want you to think like Christ. I want you to look at his example and make that your thinking amongst yourselves as you go about life. This is, this is huge. The Christ who didn't use his divinity to his advantage but laid his life down for his people. I mean, I mean, massive. But how does it motivate us? That's the question I want to address. How does it motivate us? I want you to see that I believe like glasses motivates us by helping us to see the world. You see, I wear glasses and I hate wearing glasses. Um, Dave said before earlier today that from the front he can see you all and what you're doing. Without my glasses, I can't see you and what you're doing. Not at all. I don't know who you are. And I have this awkward problem of... uh, of uh, greeting people and waving to people who I don't actually know and then moving on by people who, who, uh, who I do actually know and uh, not even being able to read the... the uh, you know when you go to Macca's and you get the, the menu up the top and not, so I, I just stick to my usual options because I can't actually read the board because I'm proud. I, I, I hate wearing glasses and yet I believe Christ's example for us is like a pair of glasses that help us to see the world, help us to see the past, the present, and the future, help us and motivate us as we see him, him clearly, see the world through these glasses of his example, motivate us to be humble. So, first of all, first area of motivation, I believe, is that we can see the past. We can properly see The past, just as we were talking before, our past and the wrongs we've committed. We see ourselves and forgiveness to be found at the cross. Just as we were sharing before in the time of singing that that brilliant John Stott quote, how when we look at the cross and we look at Christ there, we we can't help but see ourselves there, that it was was our sin that put him there. That that brings us down to signs, that humbles us as we consider our past sins and how we've placed Christ on that cross. But it's not that just that our sin put him there, it's that all our sin is there as well. I just want to pause just for a moment and and I want to ask you to think of the dirtiest, most shameful sin you have ever committed. Think about that thought for a moment. Think about it. It's there on the cross. It's there at Calvary, paid in full. If God could forgive you of murdering his son, he can forgive you of anything. If God can forgive you of causing his son to be crucified for you, there is nothing that is outside his power of forgiveness. There's nothing outside the power of the cross. Nothing motivates us to be humble more than rightly 
seeing the past. Well, it's not just seeing the past, it's also Christ's example, his, his model for us. It helps us see the present as well. I mean, there's so many ways we could apply what, what Paul is teaching here, but, but Christ's example, the primary one, the primary application of Christ's example in, in this context is, is about relationships. It's about unity. He's addressing a church that's, that's struggling to be united. There's, there's divisions, there's people grumbling, there's people upset, there's people that have been injured. And you can almost imagine them saying to Paul, they're saying to him, they're, they're saying, Paul, I understand what you're saying, but if you knew about the way in which I've been wronged by this person, if you knew the way in which I've been neglected and feel so alone, how people have failed to visit me and love me, if you knew, Paul, about the way in which others have been favoured, if you knew about the way in which I've been overlooked for mystery, how my gifts and my abilities have not been used, even if you knew about how, how people in this church, Paul, are not as passionate about the things that I am passionate about. You can almost imagine it, can't you? The, the complaints, the grumbling. And I think Paul would say, you know what, guys? You're right. I... I I don't understand your situation, but but do you understand the cross? Do you understand what Christ did for you? Have this mind about you. You know, just this week, uh, Charlotte and I were meeting with a a couple who who I'd I'd, uh, offended on multiple occasions. And we were there for one purpose and that was really for me to apologize and uh, say sorry for for some ways in which and things that I'd said that that caused these people lots of hardship and I tell you what it's hard it's so hard to sit with someone and to confess times where you've made mistakes and you've said the wrong thing and you've done the wrong thing it's so hard And yet when we look at Christ and when we look at his example and when we look at the way in which he places us before his own wants and himself, the way in which he lays down his life for us, we find motivation, don't we? We find a new way of looking at our circumstances. We find a a, a new situation in, in which it's so difficult to hold things against others after all he's done for us. Well, nothing motivates us to be humble more than rightly seeing the present. Not only rightly seeing the past, rightly seeing the present, but also rightly seeing the future. Why don't you turn with me to read the last few verses of our passage. Paul says, therefore, it's because of this, because of all that Christ has done. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ is restored to a place of exaltation. He's restored to being back with his Father in glory. He's raised from the dead three days after his death and now is raised and seated in glory, exalted because of all that he's done. And there's a day coming when every knee will bow, every tongue confess. That word confess, it, it literally means every tongue will agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will not be a single person on this earth who will look at Christ and not agree he's Lord. Why? Because they'll see him. They'll see his, his humble example that the creator of the universe would, would humble himself to die on a cross for us and there's a coming day when we'll all see it and we will fall on our knees and worship him. We will all be in agreement that Jesus Christ is king. I mean, I was just thinking from the other week, we, 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 were, we were out paddle boarding with some of the guys from church when, when Andrew Lung dropped his ring in the middle of the ocean. His wedding ring. I mean, he's been married two months and he dropped it in the ocean. I mean, there all these like doomsday visions of Cat's face and like, it was like Andrew's face just went like stone cold as he was like trying to weigh in the situation and some of the guys were diving down to try and try and fetch this ring and it was so deep down and the tour guides are saying, guys, we're really sorry but there's just no way and you know, Simon Wood's telling stories about how he lost his ring in ankle deep water and we're thinking, yeah, there's just no way and we're all paddling away and then Nick Gordon jumps up and goes, I got it! I've got the ring! And all the guys like in a moment are celebrating they're like, yes! Yes, yes, it's amazing. It's a miracle. How did this happen? And, and just the joy on Andrew's face. It was just this beautiful, sweet moment. But friends, this does not even come close to comparing the joy and celebration on that day in the future when every knee bows and sees our humble king and all he's done and agrees in all agreements. The whole earth says, yes, he's Lord. Yes, he's glorious. His humility, his humble example is glorious and we praise him and we praise him and we worship him forever and forever and forever. That day is coming. So does this passage mean that we just be a little bit humble and then in the end we'll get something out of it? Is that what it's saying? I don't think that's quite right. This, this, this passage, it's really about vindication. It's really about being shown to be right. You know, I was thinking about it, and it's just as though you went to the beach. And you came to the beach excited to go for a swim, and you saw a big sign saying, Beach closed due to rough conditions. But you look down at the right and at the left and you thought, you know what, I've got this, I'll be fine, I'm a good swimmer, strong swimmer and it doesn't look that bad and so out you go, paddling out, you know, out to sea and the breakers start coming in and one hits you and another hits you and from the other side it hits you 
and suddenly you're being pulled out into the ocean and as the waves roll over and over you, there's a crowd beginning to gather at the shoreline and you're in trouble, you're going under and you start to, to drop down under the water and you're gasping for breath and you start to wave in the air calling out for help, help, help and a, a lifesaver comes and jumps into the surf and starts paddling out on his board to come and get you and you're going under and he grabs you and he pulls you and he pops you onto his board and paddles back down onto the shore and the crowd is gathered around. Now let me ask you a question. Will the crowd gather around you and praise you? Yay! You're a hero! Congratulations to you from being saved out from the sea. It's crazy. The crowd won't be celebrating you and all you've done. They won't be celebrating me. That person, that person's a fool. That person is a foolish person for not paying attention to the signs. They will praise the Saviour. They will praise the lifesaver. It's not primarily that we'll be praised, but that we'll be with the one who's worthy of praise. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humbly admit your failures. Receive his gift. And you will be exalted with him for all eternity. Well, seeing the future is so important when it comes to humility because humility, friends, requires trust. You know, when you humble yourself before a colleague at work or before a child or before a parent or a friend or a spouse or a neighbor, it requires trust that God will help you that the wrongs against you, that they won't be forgotten by him. It requires trust that things will be put right, that you will be one day exalted with him. It requires trust that the humble example of Christ will be one day true of you. Friends, nothing motivates us to be humble more than rightly seeing the past, seeing the present, and seeing the future in light of the cross. Christ's example, he gave up his life to serve us. It's so amazing, isn't it? It's so incredible. And there's something so motivating about it as it, as it really, it, it, it just helps us to see our lives and the world just that bit more clearly. So let me conclude by way of an exhortation. Let's give ourselves to being more like Christ in all things. Let's allow the humility of Christ to be our model and our motivation for our humility. Why don't you join with me in praying? Lord, we come before your cross and we are humbled. that you, the one through whom all things hold together, the one who made us, 
the one who knows us, the one who is blameless, the one who is infinitely worthy of praise, the one who was eternally with his glorious Father in heaven would come humbled, but not just humbled as a man, but humbled as a slave, not just humbled as a man, humbled as a slave, but humbled as a man, humbled as a slave to die on a cross, bearing the wrath of God, bearing our failings, bearing our wickedness. The one from whom we ought to be saved has in fact saved us. Lord, we're we're humbled by your example. And we pray to you as weak people, help us. Help me. May Christ's example, his model, be the mark of this church. Be the mark of me. Lord, do this through the power of your Spirit. And we pray in that name. The name above all names. The name of our King, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen.